Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I am your host, as always, Trey Whetstone, coming in from Columbus, Ohio. And today we're moving into part three of the early years of Alfred Hitchcock. Today we're going to be talking and transitioning into Hitchcock's uh, relationship and business relationship, like a working relationship with David O. Selznick, who was a huge name in Hollywood at the time. So let's go ahead and get right into this. If you could turn your books to chapter 5, page 3, we'll begin. To recap where we left off, sabotage had forced Gaumont British to close their doors, and Hitch was headed back to Gainsborough Studios, where he began his career. Ted Black was the new producer there who would work with Hitchcock, and Hitchcock's next contracted film would be called Young and Innocent. It was based off of Josephine T's novel, A Shilling for Candles, and it was about a fugitive pursued by police for a crime he didn't commit. I know, very original for Hitchcock. That's the one thing when we're digging into Hitchcock at this time period, is it all kind of feels the same. There's a lot of stuff that feel the same with this set of movies that I did last episode, and the ones before it. I mean, there's just a lot of films that have the same motifs and same everything. It almost seems like Hitchcock's stuck in a rut and he needs to break out of it, which I think we'll see in this episode. Now, Charles Bennett was brought back in to write the script, and if you don't remember, that was a frequent collaborator with Hitchcock on his scripts and the ones he did with Gaumont British, especially. In the middle of preparing his treatment, though, Bennett received an offer from Hollywood to write The Adventures of Marco Polo. Bennett accepted the offer, and really, who could blame him given the state of things in London at the time with a world war brewing and all of that? At this point, Hitchcock was weighing the pros and cons of moving to Hollywood himself. On one hand, he had built a comfortable life for himself in London, and his family was close. But on the other hand, he was feeling underappreciated and technically restrained. I think we touched last episode how he felt that the British film industry was kind of the backwater cinema of the world. Now, Young and Innocent was popular in England and the U.S., but it was a fairly straightforward, with the exception of a crane shot technique Hitchcock used that was impressive for the time. In the summer of 1937, after filming had wrapped on Young and Innocent, he and his family took a trip to New York under the guise of a vacation. However, he was actually scouting out the prospect of his move to Hollywood. Our old friend David O. Selznick from the Val Luton episodes reached out to Hitchcock's agent to show his interest. He had recently formed Selznick International Pictures and was looking for new talent. Alfred left America with new connections to both Selznick and other studios, even though he didn't come away with a contract initially. Seven months after Young and Innocent debuted in England in the spring of 38, Hitchcock returned to America in search of a contract. So last time he's kind of scoping it out and getting a lay of the land, now he's going in hardcore looking to make his move. Hitchcock hired Selznick's brother, Myron, uh, as his agent and set out to meet with Selznick. After their summer in America, they ended up returning to England in September. Hitchcock was under contract for one more movie under Gainsborough and couldn't even think of signing a contract in America until that was finished. 
Now that's kind of a quick and jumbled up timeline there, kind of spanning a little bit of time. But the main takeaway is Hitchcock is actively looking to make his move to Hollywood. He no longer wants to be stuck in England, and he's looking for options. So he's going back to fulfill his contract, and then we'll see where he can land. And it was lucky for us that Hitchcock decided to fulfill his contract to Gainsborough, because we ended up with 1938's The Lady Vanishes. So how do we get to The Lady Vanishes? Well, Hitch was offered an almost easy way out by producer Ted Black. He offered him the abandoned project The Lost Lady, which already had a script done for it. The film was previously abandoned due to their crew being kicked out of Yugoslavia. So the crew went in uh, to film background shots to Yugoslavia. But when the police found out that they were going to be painting the country in a bad light, they were removed from the country and couldn't complete their filming. Hitchcock saw potential in this idea and it included many elements that he loved to put in his films. So he, needless to say, he agreed to sign on. It was filmed in Islington studio and saw Hitchcock reuniting with cameraman Jack Cox, who was one of his favorites. He was back where it all began for one last film. In Gainsborough, at least. The script didn't change much. Hitchcock worked with the original writers who had originally put the script together to tighten it up a bit, but that was it. There wasn't any overhaul or Hitchcock putting his new ideas. He's kind of working with something he's got. The movie was based on Ethel Lena White's The Wheel Spins, which is a novel. But the plot, especially the role of Miss Froy, who's a key character in this, was changed drastically. Now, I won't spoil things, but I will say from what I saw changed from the novel, I think I may have liked that story better than the movie itself, at least on paper. But we'll never know, because who am I kidding? I'm never going to read that novel. So, one of these stars was Margaret Lockwood, and she recalled that Hitchcock didn't seem to direct them at all. She did recall that every day at tea time, once Hitchcock finished his tea, he would throw his teacup over his shoulder and wait for it to crash. That's an interesting idiosyncrasy, and from what I've understood, he would, that wouldn't be the first time he would do something like that. So, yeah, and the reason he gave behind that was that um, waiting for the teacup to break is a better way of relieving tension than yelling at the players. So, I guess you have to commend him for that. If he's not tossing this teacup over his shoulder, waiting for it to shatter, um, he's going to be yelling at people, so. A much better way of handling things. Now, he did have some beef with co-star Michael Redgrave, though. Redgrave was another actor who viewed film as inferior to theater. And we know from prior experience that Hitchcock didn't take kindly to that. In fact, he made a point of stamping out that attitude whenever he could. You have to think he probably ran into that a lot because England has such this rich history of, you know, theater and those performance arts. So you probably got a lot of that of people transitioning to film, trying to do something new. They might have stuck their nose up at it. Redgrave phrased it as he decided to cut me down to size. He also claimed Hitchcock wasn't really an actor's director. While making the movie, Hitchcock got a telegram from his agent, that is Myron Selznick again, claiming that the first Hollywood movie he will make may involve the story of the Titanic. Hitchcock was very excited by that idea. But, unfortunately, as things unfold, we know that he never did a film about the Titanic, so... 
That's uh, an opportunity lost. The Lady Who Vanishes was complete in five weeks. When the film released in October of 1938, it became the most successful British film up to that point, and was a hit in New York when it opened there too. So that's about all I have for background information on the film and production and development notes. Let's go ahead and get in and talk about the movie itself. The synopsis from Letterboxd reads, On a train headed for England, a group of travelers is delayed by an avalanche. Hold up in a hotel in a fictional European country, young Iris befriends elderly Miss Froy. When the train resumes, Iris suffers a bout of unconsciousness and wakes to find that the old woman has disappeared. The other passengers ominously deny Miss Froy ever existed. So Iris begins to investigate with another traveler, and as the pair sleuth, romantic sparks fly. That's maybe a little much with the romantic sparks fly. Yeah, there might be a little bit of romance in this film, for sure. But, uh, yeah. I, so another thing, a note on that before I get into anything else on this movie is I think I had mentioned in the 39 Steps that it was kind of this unique kind of romance from what we're used to seeing, or what I'm used to seeing personally. And after watching some more Hitchcock films, I don't think it's that unique. I think <laughs> it's a trademark of Hitchcock, and maybe at the time. Uh, it's just a case that I maybe hadn't seen as many films from that time period as I had initially thought. Anyway, to set that record straight. Now, the reason that synopsis is so large is because the first 20 minutes of this film, really not a whole lot's happening. It's entertaining, but we're mostly just being introduced to the characters, and it's very much a comedic tone. Um, it's much lighter fare. And you just get to meet some of these cast of characters and learn some of their weird idiosyncrasies. And there's some eccentric people on this train, I'll tell you that. So yeah, it doesn't really get going in any meaningful way for a long time. But once it does, I mean, this mystery picks up. So let's set up how we get to this opening. Like the synopsis said, a train has been snowed in and all of the people waiting for it are forced to stay at this lodge in this, you know, kind of small backwater European town. And, you know, some of the comedy that comes with that is... There aren't enough beds or rooms for people, so there's a pretty comedic set of events that happens from that with a couple of English travelers. What I will say about that scenario of a train being snowed in and all the people waiting to be freed from that, I mean, that's terrifying. That's really terrifying, and that's... It's treated... It's kind of treated... It probably happened a lot, but it's kind of treated in the movie like it's not a big deal, but, man, I would be... I would be so... <laughs> So afraid for that to ever happen. You know, that's why I'm never riding on a train. No, no, I can't say that. But yeah, it's very much glossed over in the movie. And again, maybe that's just something that happens all the time, but that's terrifying to me. Things start to pick up the next day. So the train's ready in the morning. They've stayed at the lodge overnight. And there is one ominous scene that does happen at the lodge. So I will give it that. But... Then when we get to the train station, a piece of luggage falls on one of our characters' heads, and while she claims to have been taken care of by a Miss Froy, no one else seems to acknowledge that she ever existed. Was it a bump on her head causing her to see things, or is something much more sinister afoot? And that lead character being Margaret Lockwood. So what sets this apart from other Hitchcock films up to this point? 
Well, I think it's the inclusion of the disappearance, and that's really what drives this movie and sets it apart from his previous work. And when I say sets it apart, I just mean this is a step above a lot of the things that we've gotten in my mind. That's just in my mind, by the way. This is personal feelings on this. We get much more of this straightforward kind of mystery film, almost something like an Agatha Christie story or something along those lines. Like, it's one of those types of mysteries. And I really love those in general, and to see Hitchcock do one of those is pretty cool. An artist who we see have a contentious start with our leading lady does turn things around, though, and even offers to help her out with her search, and that is Michael Redgrave. I love the way these two characters develop as the story unfolds. It's that, it's those two characters and how things kind of piece together with the mystery. Those are the two driving factors of this that really set it apart for me. I feel like this is the best mystery plotline that Hitchcock had done up to this point, and it really grabs you and keeps you invested as it unfolds. The problem with that is, once the mystery <laughs> is solved, and it does get solved before the climax, I do kind of lose interest at that point. And it's not necessarily... The I guess it's the the film's fault, kind of. It pulls a man who knew too much kind of ending, and I I just didn't like it that well. But let's let's table that for a minute, because we have a signature, you know, one of these signature pieces of Hitchcock film, and that is to show the bomb that you have under the table. You know, it's that dramatic irony where the audience knows something, the viewer knows something that the characters just don't. And we have that here. I mean, we see what's really going on at some point. It is revealed to us, even though our two leads have no idea. And I like that method of tackling things because then it becomes, it's not what's going to happen. It's not reliant on the twist. It's more so reliant on, let's see how these characters get out of this situation or, you know, escape this or change that. I love that, and I think it makes for much better experiences on rewatches and second watches. Now, you have to pardon the pun, but like I said, it does lose a bit of steam at the end. It's just so sad to see this mystery that I'm so engrossed in be tied up and then the disappointing part happen after that. I think not only is there a disappointing piece to the film, I'm not going to go into details, but it's kind of an action sequence at the end of the film. I don't like that really at all. I don't think it needed to be in this movie. I would rather it not. And then after that, it just kind of wraps up a little too nicely. For a film that feels like it's going one way, uh, the ending just doesn't piece together here, and it just doesn't sit right with me. However, the ending does not ruin it for me, for sure. The mystery and the characters are just too well done, and the story's just so engrossing and keeps you so enthralled throughout it. It's an absolute must-watch for Hitchcock fans, and I would say a high recommend for everyone else. So far of the, I believe this is the sixth film that I've talked about in depth, this is on the top of the list at that point. So if you haven't seen The Lady Vanishes, I would definitely recommend starting with that of the films I've talked about so far. Now, we might have something that usurps that here shortly, but we'll see. So that's my little mini-review of The Lady Vanishes. 
let's go ahead and move back in and see what's next for Hitchcock after he's fulfilled the last of his Gainsborough picture deal. It's kind of an end of an era, right? He gets his start in this small company and he goes all over the place and he ends there and now he's set for America. By July of 1938, Hitchcock and Selznick signed a deal. The deal he signed guaranteed him 50000 for one movie and then also four more options that would be for one movie a year and he would get incremental increases in his pay for each of those other movies. So he has the one guaranteed film up front and then there is the option of four more years of those films. So he could hypothetically be set up for five films, just one per year. Now, they would later go back and forth and rewrite it to include two films in that first year. So it took away one of the options for the other year and moved that to the first year. So this is exciting. We've got Hitchcock setting up shop with David O. Selznick, who is a main player in Hollywood. He's finally going to get the budget and resources he needs, right? He's going to be in the place that he, you know, is going to come to call home, the mecca of the film world at this time, and it's just, there are all these possibilities. This is a fresh start, or is it? Well, let's see. I'm going to keep you in suspense there for a little bit. For unknown reasons, Hitchcock decided to do one more British film. It's speculated that maybe he needed the money, or maybe he just needed something to do while he was waiting to start his Hollywood career. Keep in mind, The Lady Vanishes came out in 38, and he wouldn't put out his first film under Selznick until 1940. So 1939 was going to be a blank slate for him as far as releases. He signed up with Mayflower Productions to direct Jamaica Inn. Now, Mayflower solely existed to feature the films of actor Charles Lawton, which, given the circumstances surrounding it, is maybe why this feels so different from other contemporary Hitchcock films, at least I think so. You may see a lot of other people that say, hey, yeah, it's got a lot of Hitchcock touch points. I know that, but on a base level, this is so different. And, I mean, he's not just doing another spy espionage action thriller. I digress. Hitchcock joked that he was not hired to be a director, but a referee between the bouts Lawton had with himself. So we're off to a good start here. And let me tell you, this is a situation... This is insane. I'm glad he did Jamaica Inn, maybe not because of the movie quality, but because of the stories that have come out of it. So let's buckle up here and get into it. Lawton was constantly improvising and working on his own schedule. He would take days off just to get the right walk he wanted down pat and would ham it up every chance he got. It was clear this was Lawton's film and not Hitchcock's. There was also a particular when I talk about the way he walks, he was doing this kind of step that was in tune to like a Vienna waltz, and it drove Hitchcock insane. He thought it was nowhere near what the character should have been. So, Now the film was based on the novel of the same name by Daphne du Maurier, and it's a period piece set in Cornwall in 1820 and involves these smugglers or, you know, modern day pirates at that time, and how they're wrecking ships. Lawton was initially cast in the role of Joss, who isn't the villain of the film, it's the uncle of one of our lead characters. He's not a great guy, but I wouldn't say he's the main villain. 
but he decided he'd rather play the role of the main villain, Pangelin. Pangelin was initially supposed to be a hypocritical priest, but of course, this character was changed due to the Hollywood production code at the time that didn't allow films to portray priests in a negative light. And you can start your drinking game now every time I mention the Hollywood production code. You can go ahead and take a drink. Um, that's going to come up quite frequently here. And why is it coming up? Well, Hitchcock's dealing with a ton of adaptations. And in novels, there's no censor board. There's no production code. So they can do whatever they want. Not so in Hollywood at the time. Lawton also demanded his character have a larger role, meaning Hitchcock had to have extensive rewrites done, and it caused him to reveal Lawton's character as a villain much earlier than he wanted to. And I will tell you, it is very early on in the film. I mean, it's like probably a half hour into the film we have this reveal that his character is actually a villain, so no suspense there. Lawton also demanded Marino Day be cast in the lead, even though she had a subpar screen test. He said he couldn't get over her eyes. Well, that sounds like expert filmmaking there, but it lucked out this time. In this case, after this film, um, Lawton would bring her along for the 1939 Hollywood version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. She would play Esmeralda opposite of his Quasimodo, and she became an international star. So maybe Lawton knew something deep down, even though she didn't do well that first time. Jamaica Inn was a huge hit at the box office, making $3.6 million U.S. million, which today would translate to about $750 million, which is insane. But so is inflation. It's not surprising that even with that success, Hitchcock despised the film before it was even completed, and it's generally viewed as one of Hitchcock's worst. I have to agree with him. And... Yes, I will be talking about this film and doing a mini-review on this. Initially, I planned to just do, and I'll give you the behind-the-scenes right now. Initially, I was just going to do The Lady Vanishes, Rebecca, and Saboteur. But, digging into these more and more, first off, Jamaica Ann was recommended to me by my friend Nathan Bartleball over on the Phantom Galaxy podcast when we had last recorded. So I was going to give this one a try for him. And then with the other film I'll be talking about a little more in depth is Suspicion. And I did that just because I liked Jane Fontaine so much in Rebecca. So that's seriously the only point. I considered doing Foreign Correspondent, which we'll be talking about here in a little bit. But I just couldn't do another spy thriller of that, <laughs> you know, that I already hadn't announced to do. i I'm just done with the spy thriller for a little bit. So again, let's set this up. Jamaica Inn was released in 1939, and the synopsis reads, In coastal Cornwall, England, during the 19th century, a young woman who's come there to visit her aunt discovers that she's married an innkeeper who's a member of a gang of criminals who arrange shipwrecking and murders for profit. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward, but so is the film. This is a middle-of-the-road movie. I don't know how much I'm going to have to say about it, but really, it's nothing special. It's entertaining enough, but I've seen so many films better from this time period, and especially Hitchcock films as well. This is definitely a change of pace, though, from the other movies he was doing at that time, and I am thankful for that, because I don't know, like I said, if I could watch another straight-up spy thriller, um... 
Unless I didn't have to. I mean, uh, it's the espionage stuff was just getting a little too much for me. So Jamaica End seemed like a very nice change of pace. And it was. Um, it just didn't hit with me like I really wanted it to. And it seems like that's a failing for a vast majority of people. But it is interesting to check out and see the different types of films Hitchcock was doing which I haven't really done to this point. I've been sticking to these thrillers. I haven't looked at other things that he's done outside of that. As was referenced and indicated, Lawton hams it up here, and he's probably the main reason to watch this film, even though I didn't necessarily love his performance. I think most of the other characters are pretty forgettable, and there's not a whole lot else. I would say Lawton and then Joss, who is the, um, you know, the uncle of the main character here. What this essentially doesn't say is we have this woman coming from Ireland, and she's coming to stay with her aunt at the Jamaica Inn. And setting up in the beginning of this, when the stagecoach goes to take her, she's saying, you know, I need to stop the Jamaica Inn. The guy speeds on past and drops her off at the road. Now she goes in and meets Lawton's character, and he agrees to, you know, he's this lord, and he agrees to give her a horse, so she meets up with Joss there when she enters the door, and it's a rather rather tense interaction between them. It doesn't really go as planned. Joss isn't this nice guy. Um, she finally does see her aunt, but things have changed, and it's not necessarily what she thinks it's going to be. So she gets, you know, her uncle Joss is wrapped up in this smuggling ring and has this whole crew of pirates living there, and... The story kind of unfolds from there as we see, you know, there is a plot point going on in another, involving another character, but there's just not a whole lot of substance to this one. This so far, so I'm going through, and I don't know if I've mentioned, but I'm going through and re-ranking all of the Hitchcock films as I see them. So by the time I do, you know, the part two of Hitchcock, whenever I do that next year, and I dig into the rest of the movies... I'm going to have this pretty good comprehensive list of, you know, 30-some Hitchcock films that I've ranked. So that's my goal for that. So I've been doing that. This one would, I say all that to say, you know, this one would be at the bottom as far as the films I've seen so far. It's not terrible. There's nothing bad or offensive about this film. It's just not great. I would recommend this only for the staunchest of Hitchcock fans, and most of them have probably already seen it. So... And I will say, as you can probably already gather, my knowledge of Hitchcock falls in with that of a lot of people, that I have seen a ton of Hitchcock films, and most of them are after the year 1950. So this little exercise was mainly to get me invested more and up my knowledge of Hitchcock. I know a lot about Hitchcock in his later career, don't know about the early career, so I think, I, I think and I hope that it's insightful for a lot of people and it's not boring to not necessarily be visiting horror films. But uh, that's the whole kind of crux of this is I wanted to get better I wanted to get better acquainted with Hitchcock's early work. All right, let's move on from Jamaica Inn. Sorry Nathan. <laughs> I hope I didn't disappoint you with that one, buddy. Hitchcock would leave England once he was finished with Jamaica Inn. He sublet his flat and he would lock the doors to his house before setting off. On March 1st of 1939, the Hitchcocks packed up and sailed for America. By the end of his tenure in England, he had made 24 films in 14 years. That's quite the workload. 
even though a couple of those were quota quickies. He was eager for a fresh start in America. He went so far as to state he was itching to get his hands on those American stars, and said there wasn't a star in Hollywood whose appeal he wouldn't want to alter. On April 5th of 1939, the Hitchcocks arrived in Pasadena, California, on a train that came from New York and moved into their new apartment. Screenwriter Joan Harrison was seen as indispensable at this point and had moved into a nearby apartment as well. So we're set up in America. We're not doing the Titanic. What's Hitchcock going to do? Well, to bury the lead a little, um, we are looking at the pinnacle of this episode and the pinnacle of what I think of Hitchcock films up to this point has been, including the other films we'll cover in this episode. And that is 1940s Rebecca. As I said, his first film with Selznick was set to be an adaptation of Rebecca. He was excited since he had previously expressed interest in adapting it. Due to how much Daphne de Muriel, which you'll remember, she also did the novel Jamaica Inn, she really disliked Jamaica Inn, the adaptation that is, and she nearly refused to let Hitchcock adapt Rebecca. She was kind of burnt, and I don't blame her really. Even though it was a great success at the time, not a great movie. Turns out they were never a fan of each other's work. Even though Hitchcock would adapt three of her stories, and those being Jamaica and Rebecca and The Birds, which was a short story, and boy, that last one there, yeah, uh, Rebecca and The Birds, maybe you should have adapted more of her work, Hitchcock. No, <laughs> no, I'm just messing. But yeah, those are, those are a couple heavy hitters. Said she was only interested in the financial gain she could get from the adaptations. So she's in it for the money, and that's it. She doesn't really care about seeing her films adapted to the screen, and that's probably why, even though she wasn't happy with Jamaica Inn, that she still let Hitchcock give it another go. Hitchcock and his team put together an outline for the film, but was disheartened when Selznick told him he was both shocked and disappointed by it. He didn't appreciate the humor that Hitchcock had added in, and he thought it was inappropriate for Rebecca. You have to remember, up to this point, that humor had become a staple of Hitchcock films, and it was giving them a little bit of levity and a little bit of a departure from just straight thriller films. So I kind of like some of the comedy he was putting in, but I can't really argue with the results here. Anyway, back on topic. He wrote to Hitchcock that we bought Rebecca and we intend to make Rebecca. He didn't want Hitchcock making a vulgar version of this proven property. Rebecca had a lot of fans, and he wasn't about to lose out on profits just because Hitchcock wanted to change things up. Looking back, this may have been the first crack in the vase that was the relationship between the two. It was seen as putting a strain between them right from the get-go. They could each have been thinking maybe this partnership wasn't a good idea. Hitchcock ultimately accepted the inevitable and worked with Harrison and a crew of American writers to rework it and make it more faithful to the novel. Selznick came back with comments making it clear that Rebecca was his film complete with his editing, his characters, and his script. So here's twice in a row when Hitchcock's films have been kind of taken away from him. You have to remember, and we talked about this, is Hitchcock very much believed 
in the auteur theory. Now, he didn't write as a lot of auteurs as we would come to know later, but he believed all roads led through the director. In America, all roads led through the producer, as you would have probably found out a little bit on the Val Luton episode I had done, the Val Luton episodes I've done. It was a very different situation than what Hitchcock wanted and what Hitchcock was used to. However, there was one aspect of the novel that had to be changed due to the Hollywood production code. I won't say what that was because it involved, you know, ending stuff, but anyway. Continuing on. There was also a scene in which Selznick wanted smoke from a fire to form the letter R for Rebecca. I know. How subtle. Well, Hitchcock thought so too. He didn't think it was subtle at all. And luckily, Selznick was busy putting out the fire over when Gone with the Wind and trying to get that massive movie out. And he was able to change that and switch it out in the final film. There was still the R, but it was done in a different way. So Hitchcock took some freedom while Selznick was away working on Bigger Fish. It was clear from the start that Hitchcock didn't fit in with the way things were done in Hollywood. Like I said, producers were expected to run the show and be given certain shots to make editing easier. Instead, Hitchcock liked to edit through the lens as he went along and have everything fall into place as they were piecing together the film. One time after a brief rehearsal, Hitchcock called for action on a scene. Someone stopped him and said Mr. Selznick needed to be on the set for this. With this one, Hitchcock tried especially hard to get around Selznick's cuts tried to edit in the camera to get everything just the way he wanted it. This ultimately didn't work, though, as Selznick allegedly took great pleasure in editing the film himself, as well as supervising reshoots and re-recording of dialogue. Rewrites and reshoots were called for after a less-than-favorable preview of the film was shown in December 26th of 1939. So it was very clear that Hitchcock wasn't going to get his way no matter what he did with this. Even though there is a lot of obsessiveness around Rebecca by the character Mrs. Danvers, still left in the movie, the Hollywood Censors Board shut down anything implying any outright lesbian thoughts by Danvers. Now, this is not the code. This is the Hollywood Censors Board. Still very seriously, you have to take them serious. So, uh, no outright lesbianism. Now, I don't know what happened in the novel with that, if it was more prevalent in the novel or not. But either way, that's a no-go for Hollywood at the time. Lawrence Olivier played the male lead and originally wanted his partner Vivian Lee to get the female lead. Lee's personality, however, was seen as completely clashing with that of the mousy second Mrs. De Winter. And ultimately, Joan Fontaine was chosen, and I'm glad that she was. To add to the troubles, though, Olivier was not very happy about this. He took any chance he could get to kind of trash Fontaine, and would whisper obscenities at her on the set all the time. To add to her anxiety on the set, Hitchcock decided she should be as uneasy and afraid as her screen persona, and told her the rest of the cast was unsatisfied with her performance and didn't like her, and he was the only one who could provide her with the security she needed. Fontaine recalled he wanted total control over me, and seemed to love pitting the cast against each other. This is not new. Hitchcock would pit the cast against each other in most of his films. At one point, Hitch recalled that Fontaine wasn't able to cry anymore after she had done so many scenes of crying. 
Hitchcock asked her what it would take to make her cry again. She said, well, maybe if you slapped me. He did, and she instantly burst into tears. It really is a wonder that people like Madeline Carroll or Jane Fontaine would ever want to work with Hitchcock again. He wasn't exactly nice to them, and he took extreme measures in making sure they were uncomfortable to try to get them into the role. He did this with most of his films and his cast. He wanted them to be at odds. He wanted there to be tension between the cast and real life so it would reflect onto the screen. So, yeah, maybe, I mean, you can't argue with the results, but the methods, as always, are questionable. There was an ominous feeling on set as one week into filming in September of 1939, war was declared on Germany. This made all of the British cast and crew members feel uneasy. When the film did release on April 12th of 1940, it was met with overwhelmingly positive critical reception and made $3 million in U.S. theater rentals. It also made an additional million in the U.K., it would go on to make $6 million total, including re-releases, which was really successful at the time. Maybe not when you compared it to Gone with the Wind, which Selznick also did. Maybe Selznick was hoping for better results. Maybe he was spoiled after Gone with the Wind. I don't know. Gone with the Wind is, adjusted for inflation, I believe still the highest grossing film of all time. So, you gotta kinda measure your expectations there, David. Icing on the cake, though, was when it won Best Picture in 1940, and we all remember that great speech Alfred gave when he went up on stage and accepted the award. Oh, wait. No, David L. Selznick accepted the award. Yes, um, <laughs> for all of Hitchcock's work, he got nothing for the film. In what has become sort of a trademark, Hitchcock would later refer to this movie as not a Hitchcock picture, even though his DNA was all over it. I think I get where he's coming from, as far as that is, you know, he had very little creative control, but it was a good movie. I think a lot of times he doesn't take credit for some of the movies he directs, and he's very humble in that matter. Yes, he can be braggadocious a little bit sometimes, but I think he, it comes from a place of honesty and authenticity. I think he knows when he's done a good job and when he didn't do as well. So I think he's just a straight shooter, really, honestly, and it doesn't help that he's suffered with anxiety problems and feeling left out through his whole life. Um, despite all the issues, it still seems that Hitchcock did learn something from Selznick, so there is that. I think he really, I think he learned how to be a commercial director. I think Rebecca is a very commercial, very friendly to the general public film, and that's why I think it's, you know, one of his very best. So, let's get in and set up this movie and talk about it a little bit. To set up the synopsis for this 1940 film, it's the story of a young woman who marries a fascinating widower only to find out that she must live in the shadow of his former wife, Rebecca, who died mysteriously several years earlier. The young wife must come to grips with the terrible secret of her handsome, cold husband, Max de Winter. She must also deal with the jealous, obsessed Mrs. Danvers, the housekeeper, who would not accept her as the mistress of the house. That sums it up pretty well. First and foremost, is this a thriller? I don't know. I'm going to borrow the Guillermo del Toro description of Crimson Peak and say it's a gothic romance, and I think it really is. There aren't any ghosts, sure, but there is a lot of suspense and a lot of 
thrills and stuff along the way. First off, I want to say the cast is phenomenal. I think they all do such a great job in this movie. It's really, it really sets itself apart. I mean, you have Laurence Olivier, and I think Jane Fontaine does an incredible job as well. Now, she's not, the weird thing is she's just referred to as the second Mrs. De Winter. She's never really given a name in this movie, a first name. And I don't know if that's the same in the novel, but it kind of adds to that uneasiness and mysteriousness for anyone who picks up on it, I think. At least it did for me, right from the get-go. The opening is a background on how Olivier and Fontaine come together and get married, and it goes on for a while. I would say that's where a lot of the romance comes in at this film. Even though it's nice and harmless, we do get hints of unnatural and unsettling things here and there, especially when we get back to this house. So, to set that up, because the synopsis doesn't always do a great job of setting everything up, the two meet, by chance, they fall in love, they get married, and, you know, they decide to go back to the DeWinter's estate in Manderley. And, yeah, it's something where, you know, Mr. DeWinter said he would never go back to, mainly we find out because of the circumstances that happened and surrounded his former wife, you know, his deceased wife, Rebecca. So the two move back there, and they're met by, you know, there are several members of the staff there, but they're mainly met by Mrs. Danvers, who is the kind of lead maid of the whole operation, and she's a very interesting character. I think that's one of the cool things, is just the depth and the dimensions of the characters in this movie. They're so great. Once she gets back there, she's kind of like a fish out of water, honestly, and that is the second Mrs. De Winter, because she's not used to this lifestyle. When Olivier meets her, when his character meets her, she is, you know, a travel companion for this older woman, um, who we assume a wealthier woman, and it's not a very good arrangement for her, but she's a common person. She's not used to wealth and riches and having people wait on her, so she very much feels out of place, and that helps her feel kind of tense and uneasy and always on edge. She's almost afraid of Mrs. Danvers from the beginning. So I think that's a great dynamic that we have, and we easily and clearly see that. It is well-written and well-acted. This is a top-notch Hitchcock film, what I call a gothic romance. You could call it a film noir. You could call it a crime, a mystery, uh, anything you want, really. Um, there is some psychological thriller elements in there for sure. But either way, this is top-tier Hitchcock, as I've been saying. It manages to feel so distinctly different than what came before it. And yeah, maybe that has a lot to do with you know, Selznick's involvement and kind of taking over the show with that. But either way, it still manages to maintain the underlying themes which Hitch loves to visit so much. Rebecca is an absolute must-watch for Hitchcock and non-Hitchcock fans alike. And I will say, I want to throw this out here now while I'm thinking about it, and this is a little bit off-topic, but bear with me. On the first episode of this, like, six-pack DVD infatuation podcast, and that includes friend of the show, former guest, uh, Dave Dr. Chuck Becker, 
and other friend of the show, former guest, Nathan Bartlebaugh, and they're over there on the DVD Infatuation podcast. And they did a little, they covered a little film from the 40s called Lever to Heaven. And that's a really good kind of thriller in this same vein, a crime film noir thriller. And I would say if you like Rebecca, to check that one out too, because that is also a must-watch for films fans of that film genre at least. And I think a lot of people would get a lot out of it. So they shouted it out over there. I had never heard of it, but I really liked it after I went and watched it. So I would recommend that too if you like Rebecca and want some more of similar things to that. So, all right. So that is Rebecca. It is the even better than The Lady Vanishes. So I think Hitchcock was hitting a stride here. Unfortunately, I don't think it would last for my taste anyway. Um, Let's move on with Hitchcock's career. So in the fall of 1939, we already stated that him and Selznick had had kind of tensions between them. Well, Selznick decided to rent out Hitchcock. He charged $5,000 a week for his services as a director, while at the same time he was paying Hitchcock $2,500 a week. Hitchcock was furious over this, and I don't think he ever let it go. Selznick was making money hand over fist on Hitchcock, renting him out at these exorbitant prices. And Hitchcock was very upset about that. And he has every right to be, really. Selznick wasn't making money on the Hitchcock films. He wasn't making money that way. He was making money on Hitchcock's name. And it's it's terrible. Anyway, the more, you know, the more and more we go on, and we'll get into more stuff later, I had a positive view of David Selznick um, from the Val Luton episodes as he was kind of this nurturing father figure to Val Luton. Learning some of the stuff I learned how he was with Hitchcock and some other stories that I had heard and over on Jay the Dead's new horror movies in, once again, uh, Dave Becker's segment over there, didn't seem like such a great guy. I'm really souring on Selznick, so um, let's continue. The positive was in these deals, Hitchcock would have far less supervision. He wouldn't be micromanaged, which could be worth the loss of money there. He would follow up Rebecca with foreign correspondent for producer Walter Wanger. This is the one I had mentioned I did not get a chance to check out. Time was too short, and I decided to watch Suspicion over this one. So, Wanger had purchased the rights to Vincent Sheen's personal memoir, which was about the man's time working for the Chicago Tribune as an American correspondent in Europe and Asia. After many failed attempts, Wanger decided to make a much more loose adaptation and have it relate to the more recent World War II, which was just underway. Hitchcock was interested and was thinking along the same lines as the 39 Steps. That wouldn't be the first time, let me tell you. Um, (laughs) He persuaded Wanger to hire Charles Bennett to write the script, and along with Alma and Joan Harrison again, They put something together. So this is Hitchcock's all-star crew, his favorite writers working together. It was set in Holland, which was already facing pressure from Nazi Germany in the real world. From the accounts that I've heard, this is very similar to what Hitchcock did with his spy thrillers in England. At least the vibe and the feel of the film. Anyway. He filmed it over the course of two months and became more and more uneasy while the real-life countries fell to Germany. He believed London could fall any day. And yes, they're making this movie set in Holland about getting pressure from Nazi Germany, and 
Yeah, Holland fell during the making of this film to Germany, and several other countries were falling left and right to Germany. And I get that. You're seeing your hometown, your home country, and it could be invaded any day. It seems like there's this unstoppable force in Europe. So, In a moment of reality seeping into the film, Hitchcock added a part where the correspondent broadcast the dire situation in London to America, almost using this as a wake-up call or a call to arms for American viewers. In this, um, from what I understand, the correspondent goes into like a BBC studio and just detailing how horrible the conditions are in London and trying to rouse America to, you know, join in the fight, which was very real and was happening, and there was a lot of pressure on America to join in the fight in real life, so... That's uh, art imitating life, right? As soon as filming ended, Hitchcock and Joan Harrison both returned to England to get their parents and move them to California. Unfortunately, Hitchcock's mom wouldn't travel with them, but she did agree to move into his country home, and later his siblings would move there as well. So they'd get out of the city and maybe be a little safer. He actually got a lot of flack for being in America at the time from his English colleagues. They thought he should have been making propaganda films. Even his old friend Michael Balkan was among them, calling him a deserter. Balkan had some very choice words for Hitchcock, and they were friends, and they had been together all along. And in Balkan's statement, he refused to name the person, but you know he referred to him as this portly young lad who I promoted and gave a start with and quickly became this huge star as a director and... Yeah, everyone knew who he was talking about. Well, in a rare occurrence, Hitchcock actually snapped back, calling Balkan's comments unintelligent and stemming from jealousy. And maybe unbeknownst to Balkan, Hitchcock had already made unpublicized contributions to the English propaganda machine and was helping behind the scenes. I think he also had brought a couple of wartime documentaries over to America as well from England to try to rouse support for them. So, Hitchcock was doing his part in his own way, and I think it's very harsh for an old friend to call him a deserter. I wonder if that relationship was ever mended. There was also a movement among the British critics, unfortunately, who proceeded to essentially call his Hollywood films trash and hold his British ones on a pedestal. This view wouldn't be adjusted until the late 60s or early 70s, so this grudge lasted a long time, and it probably took... I don't know what it took, because if you're saying, you know, 60s and 70s, it might not even been Psycho or The Birds or anything like that that changed their minds. So, uh, very petty. He was an Englishman, but it seems like they kind of disowned him. When he returned to Hollywood, he learned Selznick had rented him out again for two films at RKO. The first would be the comedy Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which he agreed to out of a sense of obligation that he felt. Carol Lombard had rented out her house to him, and he thought of her as agreeable company. He thought maybe she was a bit abrasive, but still put up with her. And I'll go off the beaten path here for a little bit. If you don't know the story of Lombard, it's pretty tragic. In a nutshell, she was a huge star in the 30s and 40s, and pretty much the go-to as the female comedy lead. She was very much into like the screwball, romantic comedy-type films or relationship comedy films. So she was a big star, but she ended up perishing along with her mother and 20 other passengers in a plane crash on her way back from selling war bonds. She was in Indiana selling war bonds and was on her way back, and the plane crashed 
around Las Vegas, Nevada. She was only 33 at the time. Very somber way to remember Lombard, but to, to bring it up, bring the mood up a little bit, there are a couple of interesting stories involving Lombard on Mr. and Mrs. Smith. The first being when Hitchcock was going over daily rushes with her. She said, I don't give an F, and you can insert expletive there, um, about that. How do my new tits look? So very interesting, probably goes in with that like abrasive uh, personality that Hitchcock had mentioned. And then the other was Lombard having heard Hitchcock's comments about actors being cattle previously that he said, had three stalls with three calves brought in on set. Each one of these stars of the movies had their name up on a plaque um, above the calf in each stall. Kind of the play on Hitchcock's assertion that actors were cattle. Mr. and Mrs. Smith was a big hit at the time. I haven't watched Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I don't really have an inkling to watch Mr. and Mrs. Smith, but that's okay. If you have, you know, let me know if it's good. But let's keep moving on and move on to Hitchcock's next film, which would be Suspicion, which he would begin work on in February of 1941. Suspicion was based on the novel Before the Fact, but had major changes made to the ending. When shooting, the script was still unfinished, and the movie didn't even have a name yet. In fact, they had different colored pages of the script to represent different rewrites. So they were constantly going in, rewriting pages, and adding those into the script. So that's a very hectic and chaotic environment. Fontaine would come back to star in this one again, and she'd be opposite of Cary Grant. And Fontaine wasn't happy during filming for Suspicion, because she believed her character wasn't getting enough attention from Hitchcock. She thought that he was spending too much time with other people, and she was kind of getting left by the wayside. Where in Rebecca, she was kind of coached along by Hitchcock, and he was very hands-on with her. Well, in reality, it turns out that Hitchcock had just become more confident in her abilities, and trusted her to deliver the performance that she needed. I will say, personally... I think Fontaine is a huge letdown in this film after her turn in Rebecca, but that's neither here nor there. Um, She also bickered back and forth with Grant as they each believed the other was stealing scenes. So they were chewing up too much scenery and taking it away from the other one. Very petty stuff, but I don't think uncommon. Hitchcock had a lot of respect for Grant as an actor. So much so that Grant would end up starring in four of Hitchcock's films. And he was requested for another six that just didn't line up. Hitchcock wanted him in those films, but timing wasn't right or circumstances weren't right. So he worked with Grant a lot and wanted to work with Grant even more. Due to the jumbled mess that was the script, there were three different endings that were prepared. One was shut down by the studio for being too much. Uh, Another had negative reactions when they previewed the movie so they had to go with the third, which was a bit more ambiguous. I think Hitchcock liked this one the best, but it did differ greatly from the novel. When it was released in November of 1941, audiences and critics alike loved it. It was the most profitable movie for RKO in that year. Joan Fontaine even won the Oscar for Best Actress. So that's two films in a row, two with Joan Fontaine, and two awards. Now, I disagree with Fontaine for Best Actress here. I don't know what was up against Rebecca in 1940, but I think she deserved it more there. I think she does a good job here, 
but I don't know. Maybe it just didn't connect with me. In fact, this whole movie didn't really connect with me in the way it seems to have connected with a lot of others. But before I get too far on my thoughts on this film, let's go ahead and set up the synopsis. Wealthy sheltered Lena McLaidlaw is swept off her feet by charming ne'er-do-well Johnny Aysgarth. Though warned that Johnny is little more than fortune hunter, Lena marries him anyway, and remains loyal to her irresponsible husband as he plows his way from one disreputable business scheme to another. Gradually, Lena comes to the conclusion that Johnny intends to kill her in order to collect her inheritance. Now, I cut off the synopsis there because there's there's too much given away with the other stuff. Let's put this first and foremost. Cary Grant is a despicable character in this film. He's a slime ball. I can't stand him. That's not to say anything negative about Cary Grant. That's talking all about the character. In that sense, he did a very good job. We have this very responsible, very mousy woman. And it's said, you know, earlier in the film, she overhears her parents saying, oh, she'll be an old spinster, she's never going to marry, and this and that, and she's just cut out for the life of a spinster. So that's kind of sad, but that's the kind of person she is, and she's just kind of swept up in this thing with her husband, Johnny. And he's never very nice to her. I mean, from the beginning, he tells her, you know, he he meets her on a train, and he's stowing away in the first class. You can tell this guy is a grade A, you know, hustler. He's a He's a smooth talker. He's a swindler. I mean, he's he's all of those things. But he ends up in this first-class train car with a third-class ticket. And he convinces Fontaine's character to pay for the upgrade. And it's with a stamp because she doesn't, you know, she's trying to find stamps. And the, the ticket taker is not very happy with this. But anyway, he's just a very big slime ball. Um, he sees her again, invites her to church. And then when they're getting ready to go to church, he takes her away on a walk and starts messing with her hair and saying it doesn't look good and it would look better like this and starts playing around and calls her monkey face and all this stuff. And I'm like, man, this guy is just obnoxious. How would... And you could see she's kind of turned off by it at first, but probably the fact that she doesn't have much interest um, from the... You know, she doesn't have very many gentleman callers. Maybe that factors into why she goes along with this scumbag. But the first 30 minutes plays out like a romance film, and it really is. It's the courting of each other, and it's the getting married and going on the honeymoon and all that, and then once they return is where things start to pick up in what some call a psychological thriller, what I call maybe a bit misplaced. Maybe it's a crime film for sure, you know, romance crime film I could see, but I don't see the psychological thriller that's been bandied about about this movie. That's just me. I feel like it's very light, like I said, on the suspense and thriller moments. They don't really come into play until much, much later in the film. And, I mean, really later. And I don't think there's enough time to build up the suspense appropriately. I mean, I think the film's kind of disjointed. And I think you can see that from the disjointed nature when they were putting this thing together. I don't mean to bag on this film. It's not like it's a bad movie. It's much better than several of the films that I've covered. I just think this one gets a lot of praise, and I don't necessarily see it that way. I think it's a good, solid film, and it's got a good cast, but Oscar-worthy? I don't know. In the end, I just don't think this is my kind of movie. I think it's good, it's just not anything special, like I was saying. 
I think Fontaine is leagues better than Rebecca, and she was part of the reason I decided to give this a try in the first place. I guess it just felt a little flat. I'm sure some of the more staunch Hitchcock fans like Pastor Matt Rawlings are going to give me crap for this, um, but it just didn't connect with me as something like 39 Steps, The Lady Vanishes, or of course Rebecca. It just seems like it's on a lower rung to me with some of his other British spy thrillers. So, for what it's worth, I mean, that's that's my two cents. I am a much bigger fan of North by Northwest if we're comparing the two, but that's for another day. I would still say this is probably a must-watch because it might hit with you better than it hit with me. Um, so for Hitchcock fans, it's a must-watch, and it's a you know a one-time watch recommendation for all others. And let's go ahead and move on to the last movie of the night. You can see where these are kind of bang, bang, bang right in a row. The only ones we really didn't talk about was Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Young and Innocent on this episode. But before Suspicion was fully completed, Hitchcock began working on Saboteur, which would be an original movie. He hasn't done one of those in a while. So this is exciting. We've got original Hitchcock stuff coming on. So Harrison and Alma helped him develop a scenario for the film, and it shares a lot in common with the 39 Steps. In fact, along those same lines, when in discussion for his next film, they also thought about doing remakes of both, you know, The Lodger and The Man Who Knew Too Much. What ended up happening those, you know, the former would be handed to a different director later, and the latter would be made over a decade later. So those ones were eventually touched, just not necessarily in the way they were expected to initially. He pitched it to Selznick, who was intrigued, but he wasn't fully convinced. He thought the idea of a dam blowing up, which is, you know, one of the main things in this movie, uh, to be overdone, and it's nothing new to American cinema. He went so far as to send one of his associates, John Houseman, to supervise turning the treatment into a script. Selznick planned on selling the film and director to another studio from the start. And I saw an interesting connection here to another set of episodes that I did. And it was that Val Luton, who was still working for Selznick at the time, um, eventually he was the one who rejected this script. So that's a little connection between Hitchcock and Luton. Houseman had a reputation for working with, you know, troublemakers or difficult characters within the film industry. He had previously done a lot of work with Orson Welles. Houseman immediately became fond of Hitchcock, though. Um, he was mainly sent into protect Selznick's investment, but he ended up coming away with a great admiration for the man. Houseman stated that Hitch's passion was for his work, and he wasn't accustomed to someone who put so much effort into filmmaking. During the writing and planning stage, one of his essential writers left the project. Joan Harrison, who, you know, came to America with Hitchcock, wanted to go out on her own and try to make her own name in Hollywood. Hitchcock asked Selznick to increase her salary, but he refused, and Hitchcock left Selznick's office infuriated. Harrison and Hitchcock would remain friends, though, and would eventually, later in their careers, reunite. Now, Peter Viatel was the young man who was brought in to replace Harrison. He had never written a script before, but Hitchcock assured him that he could teach him how to do it in 20 minutes. One time, Viatel questioned him on a plot point in the script, 
and Hitchcock replied with, they'll never ask. Now when he says they, he's referring to the audience at this point. He viewed the audience in a way that, you know, he needed to sell tickets to them, but he didn't need to necessarily placate their every need. He needed to give them enough so where they would keep coming back, but he was mainly interested in making the movies and not necessarily what the audience or critics thought. While working on the script, Pearl Harbor was bombed on December 7th of 1941. Viettel saw this as his chance to include criticisms of the wealthy Americans who opposed the war into the script. He was taking shots at the you know, wealthy socialites and the big business people who had maybe some fascist connections or seemed to have some fascist connections. He was trying to take some shots at them with this. So we're still in the script writing process, but Selznick sold the film to an independent producer, as was expected. And this independent producer was Frank Lloyd, who in turn worked out a deal with Universal to get the film released. Hitchcock was given a modest budget, but had very little interference. Due to this small budget, they had to cut a lot of corners. This ranged from turning a storage facility into an aircraft hangar, to using miniatures in the background. Even with the modest budget, they managed to have a lot of different locations. Some of these locations included actual footage, while others incorporated paintings or reconstructions. For one scene, Hitchcock heard that a Navy ship had caught fire in Brooklyn and sent a film crew out to capture it so he could use it in the movie. Filming for Saboteur began on October 1941 and wrapped up in January of 1942. It was said that Hitchcock was trying to hurry along with the filming so he could get this out as soon as possible. When it released in April of 1942, it was popular, but wasn't exactly a critical darling. This was the first time a film poster, however, would feature Alfred Hitchcock's before the title. This is a trend we would see going forward. So let's go ahead and set up Saboteur. I don't have a whole lot to say on Saboteur, because like Jamaica Hen or Suspicion, I wasn't the biggest fan of it, but let's go ahead. The synopsis over on Letterboxd reads for this 1942 film, Aircraft factory worker Barry Kane flees across the United States after he is wrongly accused of starting the fire that killed his best friend. First and foremost, I think the cast is pretty lackluster on this film, especially from what we've seen in the last few movies that Hitchcock had done. Hitchcock couldn't get the original actors that he wanted for the leads, so he was kind of stuck with what he ended up with, and I think it shows. In this film, our protagonist is framed and begins running from law enforcement in an effort to clear his name. Now, if that sounds familiar, like we said, very much the 39 steps. For me, really what it boils down to is this movie is just way too hokey, and it really is a bit of a drag. I've watched too many similar films in a row by Hitchcock, and maybe that's painting my view of it. Maybe the fatigue is starting to kick in but I just don't think this has very much special to it. I really don't. We also have a romance that develops seemingly out of nowhere and really doesn't make sense. That's from my point of way. It seems these characters' attitudes towards each other, which is that same kind of Hitchcock's, you know, they're how their characters feel about each other at first. It really turns on a dime and without much notice. The movie is fine, but it's not really what I would want from a Hitchcock film, especially at the time when he seemed to be thriving. It does, however, have a very iconic scene at the ending, 
and this involves an American landmark. I think this is a very popular scene and a very well-known scene, but that's not going to save a film for me. I just think it's too disjointed, it's too hokey, it's too... (laughs) whatever you want to say. The major accomplishment here, I think, is that Hitchcock was able to put together a spy thriller that was 100% set in the United States, and that was a first for him. All right, well, for my final thoughts on that, I think it's, I mean, it's it's a one-time watch, I think, for both Hitchcock fans and for regular people out there as well who aren't necessarily deep into Hitchcock. I think it's okay. It's a fine movie, but it sits definitely near the bottom of the list. So that's going to end all of our background for this episode. Now, next time, Hitchcock would be moving into some new territory. So on the next episode, I'm hopefully, we've planned and talked about it in the past, but hopefully I'm going to be able to find some time to record with Nathan Bartlebaugh and talk about Spellbound and Shadow of a Doubt. And Nathan might have some thoughts on Lifeboat. I probably will not watch Lifeboat. We'll have to see. But there won't be a whole lot of background and history, just some facts around the film, because those are his next three films. So we'll be hitting those next time. Now, we do have a little bit of business to attend to before wrapping up. It is that time of the month again for my watch list roulette. And this time I went out to the Facebook group and solicited some request for a number between 1 and 10. I got several replies and will be banking those other ones. So if you replied to me, don't worry. Those will be coming up in future episodes when I do this. Um, So I've got quite a few on the horizon. But let's go ahead and move into the one that was selected. So the first reply I got was from Gabe Conway over at the Real Talk Movie Podcast. Uh, Love that show over there. And it's funny, Gabe gave me the number four. And why is that funny? Well, I was picking from my modern horror films to watch, so the ones of the 2010s. Not necessarily the 2020s, but I wanted more modern film to pick from since I am covering Hitchcock. And it turned out to be a comedy horror from 2019, which, if anyone knows anything about Real Talk and Gabe and that lore, is Gabe thinks 2019's a pretty good year. So that one turned out to be... Pretty, uh, pretty, a stroke of serendipity there. The movie that was selected off of this list when I went down to the fourth pick was In Fabric. And I think, I don't know where I had first heard of this one, but I know recently I'd heard it on the Watsy Party Horror Show and they had talked about it when I was listening to an older episode. So In Fabric was the choice. Let's go ahead and set that one up. Once again, this is a 2019 film directed by Peter Strickland, and the synopsis reads, A haunting ghost story set against the backdrop of a busy winter sales period in a department store, following the life of a cursed dress as it passes from person to person with devastating consequences. Now this one is listed as a horror comedy. I think the comedy isn't really necessarily in your face, though. I think it has to deal with the absurdity of the situation. Now I wasn't familiar with Peter Strickland before this. I don't think, I mean, he's done Barbarian Sound Studio, which I am absolutely not a fan of. You can take that however you will. But I I don't know with this one. This one just feels a little disjointed to me. I'm going to say that right off the bat, because we're not just following one character. The main character is, as the synopsis suggests, you know, it's this department store and it's this dress. 
I just, I don't know if this is my type of movie. At the end of the day, it's just a little too weird and eccentric for me. Now, I like weird, and sometimes I like eccentric, but there's just some weird things that just do not make sense. And the main problem is, I just found it hard, like I said, to grasp one too many of the characters, and it doesn't help that we're kind of switching back and forth. None of the characters are really that likable, as far as that goes, and we just don't get enough time or development into any one of them to get connected. I think some of the imagery, though, really resonated with me, but overall I was unimpressed. I think I like the idea of the film, but it's just a little too off-kilter for my liking. So, and to set up a little more, so we have, we're following this main character who ends up in this department store, and this very weird acting woman kind of talks her into buying this dress for a date she's going to go on, and it's very weird. She asks the name of the man and all this stuff, and anyway, she gets this dress, and weird things start to happen about this dress. There's things where the dress should have been destroyed, and it's in perfect condition, and other weird things are happening around the dress, and ultimately, you know, it journey. we're following the dress's journey, essentially. Like I said, it, it does have that horror comedy vibe, but I think the comedy is just so dry and such black humor. Sometimes it hits, sometimes it doesn't. Really, I mean, I'm kind of all over the place with this review, as you can hear. But I think it's just a low-priority recommendation for me. I think for most, it'll be a one-time watch. In my opinion, if you're looking for a killer clothes movie, I would suggest Slacks if you haven't seen it, because Slacks is much less serious, but I think it's a lot more fun, and I think In Fabric fails to be any fun, and it really fails to be scary. So what do you have there? I think that's my main point. So, maybe it's worth a watch. Um, let me know out there if you've seen this movie and you actually like it. Give me some counterpoints. I don't care, whatever you whatever you want to say. And I'll see if I maybe come around on your way of thinking. But, that's going to do it for this episode. We did cover a lot of films. Not necessarily a large period of history like we did with the other ones, but a ton of films. And... Again, I'm going to be moving on, hopefully, to doing... I will be doing Shadow of a Doubt and Spellbound for my next episode. But, as many of you know, I just had a new baby, a new daughter, um, enter this world. So, still trying to figure out things with that. There might be a bit of delay, and I will let you know out on social media if there is going to be a delay in the next episode. We may be taking a couple weeks off to sort things out. But that next episode I'm hoping to get with Nathan Bartlebaugh and record for Shadow of a Doubt and Spellbound. Speaking of Nathan, I was recently on a segment of Phantom Galaxy, and I've been over there a couple times to talk about some new release movies, and I talked to him about Doctor Strange and the Northmen and Hatching and Thar, T-H-A-R, which is a cool Netflix crime thriller that you should check out if you're interested. But... In that episode, there was also um, an opening section where the regular co-host Nathan and Bill Van Vagel talk about some newer release movies. So there's a lot of new release movies in that episode. Um, so go over there and check it out. That is their latest on Phantom Galaxy. As for the show, you can follow it over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. Uh, I do have a Facebook group, a public Facebook group, over at Screaming Through the Ages on Facebook. 
You can go over to the website where it hosts all the episodes, as well as a blog. I've got my list of June new release horror thrillers out there now under the blog section. So you can go check that out and see what's coming and what you could be excited for for June. It's been a great year already, and there's some pretty big films coming out this month. I ask if you're enjoying the show that you tell your friends and leave reviews on the podcast service of your choice. Other than that, I think that's about all we have for this episode. So keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.